is Andy Wakefield, and this is the Andy Wakefield Podcast. This is a place where stories are told that have never been heard before. Big fans of, of your work and exposing what's been going on and, and the bravery you've shown throughout it. So I just really appreciate you for what you've done. Well, you're very kind. Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay, well, that's the end of the podcast. That's all we needed. All right, done. (laughs) Got the sound bite. We're out. (laughs) See you next week. (laughs) Okay, well, thank you so much. Welcome to the Andy Wakefield Podcast. My name is Lori Gregory. I am here, as always, with Andy Wakefield. Andy, how are you today? Great to be back. Yes, it's great to be with you. And, of course, we have a very special guest here today, uh, Dr. Henry Ely. And Dr. Ely, welcome. Um, I'd like to introduce you properly. I know that you just did a paper with Dr. Jack. We're big fans of Dr. Jack's work. And I know you guys just did a CDC position paper, which we really want to dig into about PCR testing. But do, do I understand that you are also part of the Energetic Health Institute? Is that your organization? Is that? That's the school that I founded. We uh, do a really incredible job of uh, educating people on how to make nutrition really work. That's one of the biggest fallacies in the world right now is that nutrition cannot be used clinically and therapeutically. And, and we um, have disproven that uh, with every single student, every graduate, and every person we're able to work with and help get better using just plant-based organic nutrition and some targeted therapeutic amounts of nutrients you know it just it works <laughs> it does i do it every day yep. separate juice of it amen right nice good sodium organic sodium for the joints and everything as uh, dr uh, bernard jensen would would teach us oh, i yeah. love that well you'll have to come back and give us uh more information about the energetic health institute it sounds wonderful i know you're outside of portland in Oregon, beautiful Pacific Northwest. But I've been learning so much, Andy, about PCR testing from you. And I know, Dr. Ely, that you've just put together uh, this position paper. I would really love to hear you guys kind of break down where have we gone wrong in the ability to be so misled by something that you would think would be so simple, and yet somehow it's become so complex. Is this just another case of the public not really understanding enough or looking closely enough to understand science. And so there's a there's been a manipulation. And of course, I would really like to learn more about what you discovered in your paper. Well, you know, I, I think, Lori, when we're looking at PCR testing, the first thing that we want to establish, and I think the most crucial thing for us to establish, is that we have a testing methodology that we've used for decades that's been successful. What we're using right now is really being done for the first time ever, where we're relying on a test that is not calibrated to be used diagnostically as a diagnostic tool. So for your audience, uh, what that means is we're using a test that cannot tell us whether or not a person is infectious um, to tell us whether or not the person is infectious. It's, it's medical insanity, um, what we're doing right now. Uh, previously, what we've done when we've suspected a viral infection in a, in a patient, what we do is we first have to have symptoms, right? What we do is we take the symptoms and then we say, okay, these symptoms fit these potential diagnoses. So as doctors, we're taught to develop what's called a differential diagnosis. It could be A, it could be B, it could be C. And then what we do is we test 
for A, B, and C, and we see what the lab results come back on, and that helps us hone in on what is actually causing the, the problems so that we can start an effective treatment based upon those findings. Well, what we've done for viral infections for decades is that we do a blood draw and we get what's called a viral load test. We, we will do a blood draw and we'll see how much of a particular virus is in the bloodstream. What we do also is we do an antibody test, a blood, another blood draw, and we measure the IgM antibody and the IgG antibody. And what that tells us is where a person is in their healing process from their infection, from this, from this infection. If a person has IgM antibodies and no IgG antibodies, that means they're in the early stages of the infection and likely still a little bit infectious. If a person has IgM and IgG antibodies, that tells us that a person is midway through their, the infection and well on the other side and they're going to recover. Um, if a person has no IgM antibodies and has IgG antibodies present, that tells us that they have entered into natural adaptive immunity and they have now long-term immunity against that virus. And that usually coincides with um, a reduction in symptoms, fevers go down, coughs decrease or, and go away, things like that. That usually corresponds with a um, diminished viral load in the bloodstream. Well, for COVID-19, we didn't do any of that, even though we have those tests approved under emergency use authorization here in the United States. What we instead went to is a test that, the PCR test, that is not calibrated to be used diagnostically, um, and uh, we're using it as a diagnostic tool to see whether or not a person is infectious. The, the test can't tell us that. So what ended up happening was they even made it a little bit more complex and they took this test that could not be used is not calibrated to be used diagnostically and they said instead of giving you the actual value the cycle threshold value at which this person is testing positive now they said we're going to take this quantitative test a quantitative test means that it has a, a numerical value and we're going to we're going to cripple it even further by making it a qualitative test a yes or no either you're positive or you're not so we're going to create this arbitrary line and we're going to say if you test positive below this line you are positive and if you uh, if the signal comes back positive over this line you're considered negative and what they've just done is made an absolute mess of the assessment of whether or not a person is infectious. And this is made even more complicated, Lori, because we have definitive evidence published by the CDC that shows that a person can be positive for up to 12 weeks using the qualitative version of these PCR tests. A person can be test positive for 12 weeks after they are no longer infectious. It's not giving our frontline health workers the tools they need to be accurate in their diagnosis so that they can be the most effective at mitigating the spread of the infection. And it's just, a, it's an affront to medical scientific thought, in my professional opinion. So my, my suspicion is, Andy, you're going to answer this question in your comment. I'm, because my, of course, why then naturally, why didn't we use the antibody tests? From the beginning, why did we even use the PCR test? Andy, did you want to well, weigh think in here? The other, just to add to that, one of the big problems that everybody who's used PCR has experienced is non-specific amplification, and that increases with the higher the, the cycle threshold. So if you go up above 25, 30 
and certainly in the range that was used for COVID up into the 40 cycles, you're going to get inevitably many, many false positives. You're not amplifying genes, genetic elements of the virus. You're amplifying background noise. And this can be overcome if you sequence the product. If you go to another step and you take the resulting product from your PCR reaction and you subject it to sequencing, which means chopping it up into the component elements of the gene that you've ostensibly amplified and showing and show that they are identical to the original starting target gene, which is in this case, a gene of COVID-19 of the coronavirus. So it could be overcome, but that's not been done. That has not been done. So they've relied exclusively on PCR data without sequence and at very high cycle levels, which is inevitably going to produce a plethora of false positives. And But why have they done it? In my opinion, I think that they wanted a high rate of positivity because what they want is to have a high rate of cases. They want to justify their policies of lockdown, of masking, of social distancing, and ultimately, ultimately vaccination because, uh, and I'm going to ask uh, you about this, Henry, is because you've just written so well about it, um, because of this notion, this false notion of asymptomatic transmission, that a person who is well is healthy but is carrying the virus can pass it on to other people. So thoughts on that, Harry, please. Well, uh, first of all, uh, thank you for that. Um, um, It's kind of odd calling you Andy. I've called you Dr. Wakefield for my whole life. (laughs) (laughs) So that might slip up a little bit, Andy. We have over a lot of things we've been doing all our lives. Amen to that. Oh, so, (laughs) so true. There's your quote. Um, So uh, we have to do the whole Yoda thing. We have to unlearn what we've learned so much. So um, I think what you're referring to, if I'm understanding you, is, is first of all, before we get an asymptomatic, is Sanger sequencing, correct? That, that, that if, if, in order to justify calling a positive a positive, particularly mm-hmm. at high cycle threshold, sequencing, Sanger sequencing is essential. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've, I've had the great pleasure of, of um, being able to talk extensively with Dr. James Lyons-Weiler, Dr. Singh Hai Lee, and, and Dr. Dolores Cahill. Uh, about this, and um, it's and and I am authorized to tell you now. Dr. Lee is actually working on a um, a PCR test that uh, does use Sanger sequencing, um, and uh, that's going to be coming out very very soon. We're very excited uh, about what he's what he's doing. He's going to prove that um, he's going to he's going to be able to prove what exactly what you said that when you get over a cycle threshold amplification of about 30 cycles, you're just bringing in a lot of noise. And so one of the things that we did was we were, um, we were reviewing the work of uh, Dr. Jefferson out of Oxford, Dr. Uh, his work, uh, he published a meta-analysis of 29 studies and where they're trying to equate what's, what's the real, what's the cycle threshold where we feel confident that this person would be infectious at. And um, he felt, it, it, the summary of his work was that basically if you test positive under a cycle threshold of 25 and you have symptoms, that it's pretty pretty reasonable to say, yeah, that person was infectious. But there's this area that you were alluding to, uh, Andy, between 25 and 34, 
that where it could be a possibly infectious or could be a false positive. And we know that anything really above 34 is uh, a false positive because... You've been listening to the Andy Wakefield Podcast. To continue the conversation, go to 1986theact.com slash membership, where for $5 a month, you can subscribe and access the Andy Wakefield Podcast in its entirety and much more. Thank you.